Thank you very much, Bev, for the reading. Uh, if you've got a Bible there, if you would mind turning to Philippians chapter 3, um, and you'll see where I've tried to uh, explain what I believe is in that part of the scripture. So it's Philippians 3, verses 12 to 21. And as you're turning, I'll pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we ask that today we may be encouraged by your word and challenged at the same time. Help us to have understanding. Give us the power to be able to live it out in such a way that pleases you. Be with both the speaker and listener tonight, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Nermal Purges, a Napoli's high-altitude mountain climber. In 2019, he climbed 14 of the tallest mountains, all over 26,000 feet in seven months. It had never been done before. And to give you an idea of the enormity of the task, many professional climbers have never climbed one of these mountains despite years of training. And one of the mountains that he climbed on this particular journey had a mortality rate of three in 10. For every 10 climbers that went up to this particular mountain, three would die. He battled so many obstacles, changing weather conditions, potential avalanches, blizzards, lack of oxygen, physical exhaustion, and mental fatigue. Now he's married, so he's got a commitment to his wife and he actually had to mortgage his own house to finance this particular expedition. Has anyone seen the movie, 14 Peaks? No one, you should watch it. It's very good. It's an inspiring documentary. And as inspiring as this story was, it left me with many questions. One of which was, what made him do it? Why would you ever do it? What makes him put through his body such physical exhaustion? Why risk your life and put yourself under financial pressure, not knowing the outcome? What keeps him going? Well, his answer's telling. He had a goal in mind. He had a goal in mind. His goal is this, to be the first person to climb those peaks in a record-breaking seven months and to highlight the huge contribution of his Nepalese countrymen who made so many great mountaineering achievements. That goal drove him to finish the task. It actually shaped the way he lived, especially when he was training for the climb. You often get up at 3 a.m. in the morning to train for this particular climb to make sure he was physically fit to be able to make it to the top. Now it's inspiring, but it might seem a light year from your world, from my world. Now I get nervous climbing a ladder, so I can't imagine me ever going to the top of Everest. But I suggest that all of us have got goals, which has actually shaped the way that we've lived. Let me give you some examples. Now younger people here, uh, I'm sure many of you have got a goal to go today to find a job that you enjoy and one that brings you satisfaction. Now, it might require extra training, formal learning, even a long apprenticeship. 
and move to another city perhaps. But you'll do those things in order to meet your goal. And I vividly remember saving for a deposit on a house. Then aiming to actually pay off the mortgage and putting money aside for our children's education. And now I'm at the senior years of my life, topping up my superannuation. Been there? Yeah. And during those times, we've all adjusted the way we've used our money, the way we'd spend it in order to get a deposit on a house, pay off your mortgage, or put extra money in your super, and even put money aside for your children's education. And your goal, I would suggest, has orchestrated the way that you've lived. Another example is being told to lose weight. Now, that's been whispered in my ear several times. You set a goal and your lifestyle will change in order to meet your goal. You'll plan to eat smaller portions. You'll actually choose to go some of the things that you really love and not eat. You'll begin to exercise all in the purpose of reaching your goal. Grandparents, your goal may be wanting to be closer to the grandchildren and you're willing to leave what is familiar and move to a new area or state where you don't know anybody at all but you will do that in order to achieve your goal. Paul, in this chapter of Philippians, has a goal. And he mentions it in verses 12 and 14. And actually, in my version, actually has the word goal in it. So that's why I've asked you to look at your Bibles. He tells us what his goal is earlier in the chapter, in verses 10 and 11. It is to know Christ to be conformed to his image and to await for the resurrection of the body. His goal shaped his thinking and he was willing to do whatever it took so he could arrive at his goal. But Paul hasn't arrived. He tells us that very plainly in verses 13 and 12. He says, I haven't obtained it. I haven't taken hold of it. I'm not yet perfect. And yet I think to myself, if there's anyone in the New Testament outside of the Lord Jesus who's arrived, surely it'd be the Apostle Paul. Well, he wrote nearly half of the New Testament. He set up close to 20 congregations, including the church that we're looking at today in the book of Philipp in Philippians. And he's been beaten, he's been shipwrecked, imprisoned, suffered, gone without, left for dead. There's not a person I would know would ever doubt his commitment but he's not perfect. His knowledge, as great as it is, and it's very vast, is limited. And he still tells us in other parts of the Bible, he struggles with sin. He hasn't arrived. There are no shortcuts in the Christian life. No secrets. If there were, Paul would have found them, and he would have told us what they were. Paul isn't perfect, doesn't claim to be, but he is striving towards his goal. And I think that should encourage us. If you've got someone as wonderful as the Apostle Paul striving to, towards his goal, then I think that gives us all hope that we should also be involved with striving towards that goal. And with the goal in view, Paul is willing to suffer the loss 
of all things. Now I thought about this sermon plenty of times over the uh, past weeks, and that's one of the things that really comes to my mind. Why would you be willing to suffer all that Paul has if the goal in view is not worth it? But Paul says the goal is worth it, and I'm willing to suffer everything I have in order to reach that goal. And I've put that away in the back of my mind to remember me when times get tough, that it is worth it. And what does Paul do to get to his goal? And I think this is the heart of the chapter. He says, I press on. I press on. It's actually a very strong word. It's used in the book of Acts in Acts 22, verse 4, before he was converted. That same word was used of pursuing Christians. It's like a hunting word. It's like a word that he is straining to receive something that he's not going to live up, uh, not going to do until he's actually achieved it. And he will never waver from his goal. His motivation is what Christ has done for him. We gain a hint of that in verse 14. It's called a heavenward call. Paul remembers his Damascus Road experience when God had opened his eyes to see the one he was actually pursuing, persecuting, God's Messiah. On that road, he found forgiveness. He was empowered by God's Spirit. It proved to be a new beginning in his life, a turning point which would shape his future. I want you to imagine with me for a minute you have a huge financial debt. For some of you, it may not be too hard to imagine. And you find yourself looking at bankruptcy and being destitute. You've got no way known how you're ever going to pay that debt off. And a generous benefactor comes up and pays your debt. It's not that far-fetched. I think I heard some years ago there was a rugby union player, I don't, can't remember his name, who had a big debt, whether it's through gambling or bad financial advice, I can't remember. And Alan Jones actually paid the debt. There was a huge sum of money, hundreds of thousands. And I think to myself, how would that man respond? I know how I'd respond. Or you need a kidney to live a normal life and you're longing for that kidney and someone, unbeknownst to you, donates their healthy kidney to you, wouldn't you feel a tremendous sense of gratitude? Wouldn't you want to show your appreciation in some tangible way? I know I would. And so for Paul, he never forgot God's mercy on the Damascus Road, and it proved to be his driving force. And when I hear of Paul's words, something springs to mind straight away. And it's this, the Christian life is not passive. Paul is not putting his feet up on the easy chair. Growing as a Christian doesn't happen by accident. It just doesn't wash over you. You need to work at it. It's not let go and let God, but rather get up and get going. Why mention pressing on? Because Paul knows it's easy to lose heart and stop moving forward. He realises we can lose sight of the goal. All the persecution and Christian challenges that Paul had faced, uh, you would only keep going knowing that something better awaits you. 
And I can think of a few reasons why we might lose heart or hinder our progress from actually pursuing that goal. Let me give you some examples. It's possible that we've actually focused on the wrong goal. It's like a picture collage. Someone's asked you to put a picture in there with all the favourite things you've got in your life. And rightly so, you have your family right there in the centre. And if you've got work colleagues that you've got on well with, they might be in the picture as well. And you've got your favourite football team that you've been barracking with since you were young. Your pet happens to be in that photo. And some items from your hobbies. You've got the golf sticks and you've got the things from the garden. And you've got the favourite place where you always like to go that brings back fond memories. All of them are good things. But someone asks you, where is Jesus in your collage? Oh, as a Christian, you say he's certainly in the frame. You'd never leave him out. But it's a bit like, where's Wally? You've got to try and find him. And there he is. After searching for some time, he's there in the picture. But he's right on the periphery. He's on the very edge of your collage. You haven't meant to, but all the good things that you've put in your picture have crowded him out to the very edge. You can squeeze Jesus out. Be so busy with good things that Jesus becomes a minor picture in your collage. The other thing I can happen to is that Christians are a minority. Have you ever felt marginalised? I have in our community. Everybody wants to be accepted. No one wants to be left out in the periphery. And yet only 8% of people in Australia attend church once per month. 92% of people in Australia are outside of the Christian church. We are a minority. And the values that we hold are often seen as outdated and our faith is seen as irrelevant. People, perhaps even family, may think that we're part of a cult and that we've been brainwashed. You might be ostracised in your workplace, left out of conversations, and friends believe you're wasting a good weekend by being at church, and all that talk can wear you down. And the third thing I think can happen doesn't pass the pub test. The wider community thinks Christianity is a fairy tale. My son goes to cricket, and uh, when we talk to his friends and his family and, and the uh, parents that we know, they know that we go to church every Sunday. That's why we weren't there in the early days. And they think, that's nice for you, but hey, I've got a brain. And it really doesn't wash. It lacks credibility in their eyes. It doesn't stand up intellectually. And it's only for the weak who need a crutch. And when you hear that, you can be left feeling small, isolated, and actually humiliated. Well, some people can feel let down by God. You feel like you've been given a bad hand in life. You might have had a great start, but something happened along the way, and you find yourself struggling to keep going. And as Christians, we're not immune from illness. Our families all had COVID or from financial stress, or from relationship difficulties. 
And yet as Christians, we walk by faith and not by sight. I don't know how God will use the invasion of the Ukraine, the floods on the East Coast, or COVID. And if you've been affected by them, no, I'm sorry, and I hope things turn better for you. But the Bible reaffirms that God is for us. And he has demonstrated that very clearly by sending his son to die for sinners. And Paul says this, one thing I do, well, now you've got my attention. I'm all ears. If Paul says there's one thing, tell me what it is, Paul. You've got me. He says this, forgetting what is behind, I press on. Now, you can't change the past. If reconciliation is needed, then do that and move on. Don't let the past hinder your advancement as a Christian. I think it's harder for those who want to tie up every loose end. Don't let it strangle you. Leave it behind. Don't let it be a noose around your neck and become a burden as you try and press forward. And there are some things in the past that can't change. Paul was holding the cloaks of those who murdered Stephen. He can't bring Stephen back to life. Seek God's forgiveness. Be reconciled where possible and move on. And then Paul gives us some helpful advice how to do that. He says, press on by following godly examples. We have many examples before us today, often celebrities or sports people who have incredible talent and can do amazing things, but don't always offer a good example. And Paul often, or Paul cites examples not to follow, verse 19. He actually tells us they're enemies of Christ. Their God is their stomach, their mind is on earthly things. We would say they're self-absorbed. Thankfully, we have many godly examples at St. John's. Watch their lives and have them as your examples. Have them as your mentors. Put them on your wall. And Paul cites himself and Timothy as those good examples in verse 17. We're not talking about perfection. Paul has already told us he hasn't arrived. But people have a love for Christ and for others. Follow their lead. Watch how they conduct themselves and let them be your examples. But what kept our climber moving forward? He kept the goal in mind. When he was on that mountain, it would have been easy to give up. He had seen the bodies on the side of the mountain who had perished in their attempt to reach the summit. He had battled physical exhaustion, mental fatigue, and extreme weather conditions. But his purpose was for always something bigger than personal glory. Paul was gripped by a similar single-minded focus, but his eyes was an incredible prize. He was convinced that any hardship or suffering or pain he experienced in this life paled into insignificance when compared to what awaited him. Paul's prize is far greater than any earthly reward or personal tribute. In verse 14, it tells us it has an internal significance. A new generation might surpass what our Nepalese climber had done. 
but nothing, simply nothing, will surpass what we are seeking as Christians. We seek a saviour from heaven. We long to claim what is ours, a citizenship that is in heaven. And we want to have a body that will be transformed by the resurrection when we'll be at last with Christ. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the many examples that are set before us, the Apostle Paul being one of them, for his devotion to you, for the goal that he had set before his mind and how it shaped his life. Lord, we may never live up to that kind of uh, commitment that he had shown, but we can follow his example. And I pray that you would help us when hardship and difficulty comes to have the goal of our citizenship in heaven and to make sure that nothing gets in the way of passing on and pursuing that goal. And we ask it in the name of Christ. Amen.